I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kitty, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined once again by my friend, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. How's it going, Chuck? Hey, it's going fantastic. It's nice to be in the office for a week and be able to chat with you again. Were you in the office all week this week? Yeah, I was. I was. Isn't that crazy? I've got two weeks now on the road before I'm back. So yeah, it's been... Those weeks in the office are like a luxury now. They feel really good. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. I know. I've been been all over the place these days. And so for me, I feel like to have a a night off or a couple of nights off is yeah. has become kind you don't of get a luxury. Any nights off though cuz you're studying for a test so you don't get, Yeah. <laughs> you don't get time, you don't get any rest till you get that thing done. I know. I know. When do you take your big test? Next week. Oh yeah. All right. We'll see. We'll, we'll, I'm, we'll, I'm not we'll the best party test next week. taker. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> if you pass I'll send you some more cookies and if you don't pass I'll, I'll probably need even more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll be so disappointed that I have to do it again. I, I'm out of practice, definitely, with oh, taking tests. Oh, I can't tests. imagine, really, like, I can't imagine going back and taking, like, like take the PE tests. exam again. That would be insane. Like, I could never do it. Well, thank God this is not the PE exam. Yeah, but even, like, <laughs> yeah. the SCP that you're taking, I would not want to do that again. Yeah. It has been a good refresher to go through – Basically, having a better understanding of timeline of events and kind of stitching together cases and legislation and historical events together in a way that I hadn't when I was studying in college. You know, for whatever reason, it's like certain things didn't register. So it actually, you know, for, for better or for worse, it is a good process of going back through material and starting to connect things in a way that my uh, 20-year-old brain didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Actually, having done grad school, not right out of undergrad, but like after five years of work experience, I found that I did just process things differently than my classmates who were only like three or four years younger than me, but that that time in the work environment um, just does, it does change the way you hear things and process things. So, yeah. I, I do feel like even, you know, between now and five years ago, my brain processes information differently and I react differently to things. Like I definitely can tell just in a small amount of time that, you know, a lot of uh, people change pretty drastically, I guess, when they're younger. <laughs> Yeah. Well, for all the people who get mad at us for talking about the weather at the beginning of the show, we didn't do that today. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was about to start talking about the weather, so it's good that you caught me. <laughs> Preempt you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
Today, we have a fascinating article that was written by Mitchell Clark of The Verge. It is entitled, Zillow Reportedly Needs to Sell 7,000 Houses After It Bought Too Many. So unless you've been living under a rock until now, you've probably heard of the website Zillow, which hosts online marketplaces with information about residential properties, including properties that are for sale and for rent. For many people, Zillow is, you know, kind of a place to reference what you think your home might be worth or buy a new home or rent a home. Um, Also a place where you can be nosy and try to see what other people paid for their homes and look at $6 million estates that are for sale and daydream about buying them. But for the past couple of years, Zillow has expanded their business model into the home speculation and flipping game. The Zillow offers program basically offers cash for homes, followed up by Zillow going in and implementing home renovations as basically in addition to their database business model. Apparently, Zillow is actually not the only company doing this. There's other tech companies that have been buying up real estate, and apparently there's a bit of an arms race to buy up as much real estate as possible right now. Zillow actually told investors that it planned to buy thousands of homes just this year. But reports are coming out saying that Zillow is suddenly reversing course. Recently, the company announced that they will no longer be buying homes and they're looking to offload thousands of homes. Zillow is also laying off 25% of its workforce and has lost almost $4 million. So the important question I think here is the why, because it's not entirely clear. Um, It's been speculated that Zillow may have miscalculated their value projections, which is kind of ironic and funny, (laughs) but the company is citing issues that are related to the pandemic with construction costs and labor shortages, which is probably part of the story too. You know, it's just fascinating to me on all friends. I, I can't help but scratch my head at the idea of a home valuation company missing the mark in this way. It just doesn't make logical sense to me that they would buy during a super hot housing market. Really? It does to me. Oh, yes. To me, this seems like, you know, buying high and selling on the way down is like fundamentally uh, an investment no no, right? But you, so you would think that a company like Zillow would not, A, not do that, and B, have a better sense of, um, I guess, investing based on the value of something. But I, I feel like there's a bigger picture here or more full story that maybe isn't being captured in this conversation or it hasn't truly unraveled yet. So so why does it why does it not surprise you? I'm curious. I, I feel like there's a there's a Zillow story. And then there's like this broader like market societal story here. I think that this has the potential, and I'm not making a prediction, but I think this has the potential to be like the pets.com of this bubble. You know, in in the in the 1990s, at the end of the 1990s, when we were having the dot com bubble, you you would just put dot com on the end of anything and list it as a public company, and it would it would skyrocket in price because we had this mania and. 
part of it feels like that's where the Bitcoin universe is at right now, right? Like there's like 17,000 different altcoins you can buy now or NFTs and all this stuff. And it seems like that's where like the stupid money is piling in on, like the crazy money. Like this is the blow off top is what you would call it in a market. Um, but this Zillow thing seems to me like it has that same kind of like ring to it. Th this was a stupid idea from day one. And, and to me, it, it, it is not hard to understand why it was stupid, but if you're a computer algorithm guy, not a housing guy, and I use guy there broadly, you can <laughs> do whatever gender you want. It may, may be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but it probably is accurate. But if you're like a computer algorithm geek, you think you really know something about housing. Yeah. And if you're a housing person, it, it's, it's obvious that you don't. So let's take two homes that are a quarter million dollars. And they're both going to go on the market for sale. And, and Zillow can look at it with their algorithm and determine that this house in the marketplace is worth a quarter million dollars because that's what their whole you know algorithm suggests that this house is worth in this neighborhood with this size and this many bedrooms and all that. One person, they both list their house. One person lists it for 280 and they realize that internally their house is in really good shape. The heater's up to date. The the you know the foundation is solid. It's got a new roof. It's got you know like all the like basic things, and it's in you know they've taken care of it. They've loved it. Maybe it's got some ugly wallpaper, but like nothing you can't like fix up if you bought it and moved in. And the next one, the two hundred fifty thousand dollar house, um, they realize that everybody who comes says the plumbing's bad. The roof needs to be repaired. Like there's all this stuff wrong with it that is not going to show up in the algorithm of Zillow. Right. Well, which one of those two sells to Zillow? Yeah. Which one of those turns around and says, okay, we're going to sell to the buyer sight unseen, the computer algorithm that's going to sweep in and pick it up. So to me, right away off the bat, they are buying the crappiest properties, Right. Like they are just, their algorithm is going to feed them the crappiest properties because if you were going to sell your house, you're not going to sell it like on eBay. I mean, you're going to go through like Zillow. You're going to actually do something different. So here's the second part of this. Now you've got this crappy house and you have to actually go out and fix it. That requires you to have people on the ground. That requires you to do things. Well, they're right. like, well, our algorithm will just hire like a local contractor to go in and do this and do that. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> like who who right now in this country, like if you said I got a plumbing issue or I've got, um, you know, I want to get some tile in my bathroom, good luck with that. Like it's going to take you months and months. This kind of business model is a business model that you get when the people doing the transactions buy into their algorithm as opposed to have any real understanding of how housing actually works. And how housing is actually creates value for people. <laughs> and, and I do feel like this is like the manifestation of the commoditization of housing. You know, you, you, yeah. you look at it from like a big short standpoint and you're like, yes. well, a house <laughs> is a house is a house. We yeah. go 30 year mortgage. We put it on a secondary market. You've got, you know, people who have certain credit ratings and we'll bundle those together. And what you find out is like you lose something essential about what a house is when you treat it like a marketized commodity. Um, Zillow, to me, has bought their own crap. They bought their own story. And 
I think they're going to pay big time for it. I mean, the losses that they've got right now, if you look at businesses that go through certain things like this, lay off 25% of your workforce, report millions of losses, try to, you know, 7,000 homes. I'll bet it's 70,000 homes. I'll bet it's 400,000 homes they got to get rid of. And start doing the math on that. You're talking billions of dollars of bad inventory. Now, they might get bailed out because the market's rising and they might not lose that much. But my gosh, they've got bad investments. And if the market did do what a lot of people think it needs to do, which is correct down 20, 30, 40%, they'd be, I mean, Zillow is gone, wiped out as a company, like does not exist anymore and sells off their, sells off their mapping thing to a small little company. Yeah. When I was reading this article, you brought up the big short and it actually reminded me of that movie because in that movie, they're, they're basically all the actors in that story are blinded by optimism, right? Like you have all these characters that just, they don't believe that things could ever fail. You know, it's too big to fail. There's the lady who's like, oh, it's just the goalie. And, and they just say, they speak as if, things will just work its way, work itself out. And that's kind of how this story seems with Zillow, especially because since owning a home, I have learned that Zillow valuations are considered to be very optimistic compared to actual appraisals. Like just talking with bankers, like Zillow is considered to be the high point. And then they, you know, look at other sites as low points. So it's ironic to me that Zillow would then overestimate purchase prices in their own investments. It it kind of says to me that they actually believed in their algorithm and didn't view it as optimistic because if somebody is trying to sell their home, they're going to go on Zillow and look at what they think their home is worth. And it would be really weird if Zillow turned around and lowballed against their own estimate. It kind of speaks to this like, blind optimism that Zillow seems to have around the projections that are produced by their algorithm. I also, you know, as I, as I was reading this, I was thinking exactly of just all of the nuances involved in the practice of actually buying, renovating, and selling a property. And I think it's very believable that Zillow drastically overestimated the allowable margin of error in that business and really the managerial capacity that's needed to implement something like that. Um, that's really my speculation. I think that they didn't they didn't realize that managing data and algorithms is very different than actually like getting your hands dirty and flipping a house and dealing with people and and pulling something like that off. I mean it's the the real estate can be such a nuanced kind of thing. Like you were saying, I mean, that it's not even just structural, like having to do with the quality of the house, but also there's block by block nuance that an algorithm is not necessarily going to pick up on. Um, you know, so it, it doesn't surprise me that, that this strategy failed, but it does surprise me that, Zillow would do something that, I mean, on its face, it just seems like, honestly, a really stupid strategy. Right. So let, let's get to the macro story in a bit. But before we do that, I think there's a certain aspect of this where, you know, Zillow, it, it, like I said, bought into their own thinking. 
But I think also in, in treating this stuff like a commodity, how much of this did they actually create the market that they're trying to buy into? In other words, everybody goes to Zillow to find out what their house is worth. And when the house goes up, it's like, yay. I mean, I, I use a, a, a tracker for my bank accounts and investment accounts and what have you. And it gives you a net worth at the bottom. And every now and then my net worth is like way higher than I thought. And I'm like, what, what is this? And I'll look and it's because Zillow has inflated the price of my house again. It's like, oh, my housing price just jumped up $20,000 or $30,000. And so to what extent are they influencing the housing market and causing this bubble to keep going up and then and then going and turning around and speculating on that market? I mean, that, that to me is a huge breach of ethics, like not that they are held to some kind of ethical standard, but it, it kind of makes me question whether that should actually be legal. I mean, I, I'm not an attorney, so I don't know, but it seems really wrong that large corporations, especially those that are manipulating the market directly, would then be making speculative investments in that market and creating bubbles. Yeah, I get that. Although on the other hand, I, th- I, think, <laughs> I think what's actually happened is that they believe that they believe in their own prices. And that's why they've, in a sense, like screwed this up, right? Yeah. So they, they've caused all of us to be so optimistic that we all just <laughs> blow a big bubble in this well, market. <laughs> so when Zillow first started doing this, one of the stories that I read, and this was a couple of years ago, one of the stories that I read, they talked about housing as being one of the greatest arbitrage opportunities ever. And understand what arbitrage is. So for those people who are not into investment, arbitrage is this idea that there's a a difference between what something will trade in one market and what something will trade in another market. So I can buy a barrel oil over here for $50. I can sell it over here for $55. I've made a 10% arbitrage. You know, The, the reality is that markets are, I think we can argue about the efficiency of markets, today. But what markets are really, really good at is driving out arbitrage opportunities. And so, you know, with with the way global trade is arranged, if there's slight different nuances in interest rates or nuances in pricing from different places, the market will buy into those and reduce that level of arbitrage. If, If something's selling for more over here and less over here, People will buy it in the one and sell it in the other, and and it will have the effect of increasing prices in the one and decreasing prices in the other. That's arbitrage. And and places can make billions, billions, and billions of dollars doing arbitrage. The thing that when when you're a computer geek, when you're an algorithm jockey, when when you look at arbitrage opportunities, housing looks like this massive arbitrage because you can look at Zillow's algorithm and say, this house is listed at, you know, it's valued according to us at 225. They're listing it at 225. If I buy that, that is a $25,000 arbitrage. And if I can flip that in three months or four months, and I can borrow the money at almost 0%, I'm hardly taking any risk because the housing market's going up. So everything sounds great. Look at this arbitrage I can capture. The problem is, Flipping a house is not that easy. You've got realtors fees. You've got transaction fees at closing. You've got all the time and energy of getting contractors in there. You're going to buy a lemon. You're going to buy a lemon quite frequently because they don't send people out to do evaluations of all these. 
every time they buy one. They might get an inspector to come in and look at it, but you're not getting you know, a sense of the neighborhood or the sense of like where this house fits into things. This is, to me, where you see the, the, the tail wagging the dog in terms of our economy. Instead of housing being something that has value and has value relative to a neighborhood and to people and to what is going on, and that value then creates value for society, what we've decided is that the betting markets create value and that value will then be deployed down to the value of houses at the at the local level. And to me, there's no more clear uh, case study of how this system is screwed up than this whole fiasco with Zillow. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, Zillow, the, their whole model here was based off of creating efficiencies, so-called efficiencies, in the purchasing process, right? They would come in, they would handle it, they would buy your house for cash. And then, you know, as a one consolidated entity, they would then implement <laughs> several different home renovation projects. And again, I think that they just miscalculated the process of renovating a house. Like the, they they had this idea that they would make this big bet on the idea that you can make this whole process streamlined and efficient. They didn't really understand this like block by block nuance that neighborhoods have. Finding a reliable contractor and a team of people to actually implement a project like that, um, you know, they're so far removed from the local ecosystem. It's it's hard for people in a local place to find a contractor that is, um, you know, worth their time. And unless you're they're not on site overseeing a contractor necessarily. So, I mean, it's just, there's all these things that you would think they would, they would have known, but I guess they didn't. Yes. Zillow becomes the dumb money. Right. right? I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> you, you, you and I know, okay, you're going to get tile in your bathroom. You'll go get three different quotes. You'll talk to people. You'll get references. You'll spend some time figuring this out. Zillow is trying to do this like at scale. And I know all kinds of contractors who, when the outside person comes in, is like, what, you know, do it. They'll throw a big number at them, you know, two times, three times what you would normally charge. And Zillow winds up being the dumb money. And this is, I think, the macro thing. And I think this is what, I think it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, Zillow screwed up. Zillow made a mistake, Zillow will pay for it, and Zillow shareholders will pay for it. And great, okay, fine. But I feel like the macro thing is so much more urgent and so much more important. And that is that the, the only reason that Zillow is capable of doing this is because we have ridiculously low interest rates. We have interest rates that have been forced down through federal policy, policy of the Federal Reserve and policy of the U.S. Treasury Department. We have forced down interest rates in order to, and the story told to us, is create uh, employment opportunities, create economic growth, keep markets stabilized, and help us get out of this recovery. And okay, fine. Maybe we can buy into that story. But we've had these low interest rates really since 2008, since the, the housing crisis. There's a little like tiny bump up, and now we're right back down to where we've been. Not only that, but we print 
billions of dollars a month, like $120 billion a month for the last you know 16 months, slightly less before that. And supposedly we're going to taper that down now. But the idea is that we've been pumping all this money into the economy to buy up every mortgage that is originated, to buy up every uh, transaction that goes through a real estate market. And the idea is we want to create liquidity in the market. We don't want anyone to get like stuck uh, with the chair that gets pulled out from underneath them in the game of musical chairs. And so if we just pump enough money into the system, well, what happens over time is that you create this plethora of dumb money, of dumb players, of players that don't respond to market conditions. And you can look at it and say, well, if we lower interest rates, Abby Kinney, you can afford a more expensive home. And so one of the ways we get you into a home or make housing more affordable for you is to lower the interest rate so that your payment buys you more home. That's awesome. But do that for a decade, do that for 14 years. And what happens is that Zillow and other dumb money players have all this like cheap cash to play with. They look at your house as an arbitrage opportunity and they come in and bid you up because they have no kind of fiscal restraint reining them in. And you actually wind up with this market that is predatory on normal people. Low interest rates are not helpful for us. It's not helpful for regular people. It's not helpful for an economy where you're trying to have like real grounded transactions. It's great for a financialized economy. It's great if we're going to base our economy on Amazon and Zillow and Facebook and, and you know, big tech companies who are running algorithms. It's horrible if we're going to base our economy on you and me and what it is like to live in a neighborhood. Yeah. Well, it removes, I mean, in a sense, when money is cheap, it removes skin in the game, especially for these kinds of companies. And it allows them to do some really dumb things and not have a lot of accountability tied to it. I feel like before we end here today, we need to have like a PSA to tell people to, if they can help it, not sell their houses to uh, giant tech companies. You know, I, I feel but like these I don't companies. Know. If, if, if my house, if Zillow says my house is worth a quarter million and the realtor comes and looks at it and says, yeah, I can't list this for more than 225 because you got all these problems with it. And then Zillow comes and says, I'll pay 250 for it. I don't, I mean, it's pretty hard to tell someone not to sell to Zillow, you know? I know. Well, and I think that's the, that's the thing that is, you know, they're, they're offering these short-term gains, but <laughs> I mean, do you think it's likely that a home bought by a tech company will ever end up in the hands of a local owner again? I, I find that hugely problematic because it's likely that they will end up into, in the hands of institutional investors that will just continue to rent them and that that separates local people from opportunities to actually build wealth in their own community to me that's hugely problematic it is and i i you know there's a part of me that says there's a reckoning coming where this is all going to get shaken out and you know these these really bad players that have been in a sense anesthetized by this the overwhelming amount of money that's been thrown at the markets and at big players and at, you know, billionaires and important people. Like th there will be a, a reckoning for that. But I said that in 2008. I mean, I was saying that in 2004 and 2005. And then when 2008 happened, I'm like, oh, here it is. Here's the reckoning. And it wasn't. And so I've become kind of leery of being like the chicken little, like the sky is falling. Yeah. And just said, you know, uh, the old adage, the markets can stay 
insane longer than you can stay solvent, I think is very true. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we're in this period of time um, where we've created all this kind of crazy distortion and you see it actually manifesting as being predatory on regular people in regular neighborhoods. You know, I, I don't know how much longer we will continue on like this, but it feels like there is a finite, you know, Zillow to me is one of those situations that is like, um, it could be like the, uh, the first snowflake or the first snowball that starts rolling down the hill that gets kind of things moving. At least that's what it that's what it feels like to me because I'm kind of waiting for the the avalanche <laughs> in a sense. It's kind of like um, how World War One started when oh my gosh, the man was shot. Now, now it... <laughs> you're going to take us into another half hour. Yeah, there, there was a, there was a story I was going to tell you that I didn't get to here, and and that was one that Joe Minicosi's told me. He used to work for an insurance company. I can't remember which one, but it was a large like national insurance company. And he was in their commercial real estate division. So when you pay your insurance premiums to a big company, they go out and make investments in that money and they use that investments to pay claims, right? So they're, they're basically like a massive investment bank is what a big insurance company is. And so part of his job was to buy commercial real estate for this company. And one day they came in and they're like, we got, you know, however many, $50 million. We got to get out of here by Friday. Go buy, go buy, you know, malls. <laughs> and like they, you know, sight unseen, like they were going and looking at this and evaluating it. And they just had to like get $50 million out the door in like five days. That's what dumb money looks like. And when you and me are competing against dumb money, it's really hard to to have sanity in the housing decisions that are being made in our cities. And the thing is, dumb money is now not a marginal player in our system. It is the player. It is like the dominant force. Because we've had, you know, over a decade of almost zero interest rates. So understand what a zero interest rate is, is like no risk money. Like I can hold this money for a long time and not have any holding costs on it. And so I'm able to do all kinds of crazy stuff with it because I, you know, I essentially don't have to pay it back or I have to pay back very little. I can always push off paying it back till tomorrow. Yeah. There's much less accountability, especially right. at scale. Especially and and at this scale. is why you see such a difficult, anytime there's talk of like interest rates going up, even though inflation is high now, 5%. 5% inflation, interest rates should be at 8% because there should be a gap up between you know inflation and the rate of interest. The fact that interest rates are at like 1.5%, it tells you that something is really broken. And you've got the market signaling like interest rates have to go up, interest rates have to go up, interest rates have to go up. And what that is doing is it's trying to tell everybody who is in these kind of weird places where they've borrowed a lot of money that you know your cost of capital is going to go up here soon. And I don't think it can happen. I don't think it can happen without wrecking the joint. And I think Zillow is like an early, an early like canary in the coal mine kind of thing telling us that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we can, uh, we can end it there on a yeah. positive note, like always. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
kidding. Okay. Bum, so bum, bum. I know. Yeah. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> well, so <laughs> before we um, finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading or watching or listening to, just anything that we've been up to these days. So Chuck, what has uh, been on your mind these days? So I think it was two years ago. It might have been last year, though. I read a book called 1493, which is basically about the Colombian trade and like the world after Christopher Columbus sailed to Hispaniola and and everything that kind of happened from a ecosystem, cultural exchange kind of thing. And it was a fascinating book. It was really, really good. I put it as one of my top books of the year. Um, I had on my list to go back and read. It's by a guy named Charles Mann to go back and read his book, 1491, which was basically uh, this, this kind of uh, recitation of what the world was like in North and South America before Columbus. And it's the book is actually called, the subtitle is New Revelations About the Americas Before Columbus. And it's this is, this is an utterly fascinating book. I mean, I was taught that you know, the, the Americas were populated by people coming across the Bering Strait during an ice age. And that has kind of been thoroughly debunked now, uh, even in the last like 20 years. Yeah. You're looking really? at me quizzically. No, oh, I yeah. didn't know no, that. that's, that's a, that's, that theory has been like majorly debunked and it never made any sense anyway, because how'd you get people like living on Easter Island who made it all the way to Easter Island from the, from the Polynesians, but never made it the last like little bit to South America. Like that didn't make no sense at all. So anyway, um, this goes through and just is talking about, and I'm only like halfway through it now, but it's, it's talking about basically the massive civilizations that existed in North and South America, the incredible level of sophistication and prosperity. And the, the kind of fun thing about it is it goes against kind of both, I would say dominant political myths that I think we've been handed or dominant cultural myths. The first that, you know, the Native Americans were, uh, these very one with nature kind of hippie utopians that lived, you know, uh, this kind of existence that was almost non-human in its character. Uh, you know, absolutely not true. I mean, they completely transformed the North American continent. They had agriculture, they had irrigation, they deforested lands. They did everything that humans do in other parts of the world. And then this other myth that, um, you know, they were culturally inferior, that they somehow, you know, had backward beliefs and were, um, you know, primitive when we came over here uh, and found them. Well, we found populations that had been largely wiped out by, um, you know, by disease, disease that, that we brought in a sense. And I say we, I'm of European descent. So Europeans brought over here lots of disease and wiped out these populations before most of them ever met anyone from a European subcontinent. And so, you know, this idea that somehow uh, this was this backward nation in need of bringing up to uh, modernity is just also absurd. So I, I'm finding the book to be utterly fascinating, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be in one of my top recommendations of this year as well. I'll have to read that one. You've had some really good recommendations recently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, always, always good recommendations. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah. I liked, I like books. Well, so I actually, I, I'm not proud because I should have been studying, but last weekend I binged 
Um, the last Halloween show that I'm going to watch for the rest of the year because now we're moving into the holiday season. So I can't watch horror all the time. I try to keep it just in October. Um, but last week I was talking to Daniel about a show called Haunting of Hill House, which is like a mini series that's done by a director named Mike Flanagan. And I've seen several of, you know, pieces of his work. Um, and he recently put out a new mini series called Midnight Mass. <laughs> and, you know, as somebody who has grown up Catholic, I was like kind of excited about this because it mixes Catholicism and horror and actually does oh, it. Oh, it sounds delightful. Yeah, it actually, <laughs> I know, I feel like my family would not like it, but <laughs> I, it actually did so in a really, I think, thought provoking way. It's basically about like, I, I don't want to spoil it, so I don't want to go into it too much, but it was an amazing show. And the writing was basically centered all around monologues. So every scene was mostly a monologue, which is very unique. I haven't seen a show do that before. And, you know, I, I think for some people, if monologues are not for them, they probably wouldn't like this show, but it made the show really slow burning and intense. And, you know, actually talked about, it, it brought up a lot of like religious elements in a way that I actually thought was really smart and actually not offensive to people who are Catholic. Like if you actually watch it and, and listen to what they're talking about it, it mixed the horror in with these like really big themes that are kind of hard to swallow and, and did so in a, just a way that I've never seen done. So I, I actually thought it was very good, but it's my last horror show of, of 2021 because I need to move in. I need to move on and move, on to and move into specials. The, yeah. Yeah. I need to move yeah. into the holiday season and nice. maybe I can watch some Harry Potter. That's, that's appropriate, right? <laughs> so I am uh, meeting with my priest at my local Catholic church to talk about a plan that the church has to tear down a bunch of buildings for a parking lot expansion. Wow. You can imagine that this will be an interesting conversation. Should I recommend this show to him? Should I say, <laughs> my, my colleague and friend, watch this show? And and I just I thought you might like it based on her description. Yes, absolutely. Yes, okay. I, I'll do that. I'll see how that goes over. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it was a mind-blowing show. I just, yeah, it's... It was incredibly unique and intense, slow burning, um, great storyline. I'm I'm a big fan of this particular director, so I'll be hopefully he puts out something next year because a lot of a lot of scary movies are not very good. Um, so this is actually storylines that I think are compelling and well written and well thought out. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we can leave it there today. Thanks for joining me. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye, Abby. Let me show you what I'm about to do.